Amen. If you're thankful for the worship this morning, say amen. 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 I just wanted to clarify, uh, because I know some didn't get the joke that I made a few minutes ago. Um, April 1st, April Fool's, usually you prank people on April 1st. I said men's prayer breakfast is on April 1st. It's not a joke. I'm not pranking you about that. So just in case anyone during the greet time, during the worship, you're like, I just don't. You're asking, you know, your spouse, you're asking someone near you. They're like, I don't know. I really didn't get it either. So I'm just making sure we're all on the same page. That, that was the joke, as, as good as it is. So uh, this morning, uh, we are so thankful to worship the Lord together, to gather, to praise him, to honor him and lift him up. And we are in uh, our series right now, The Passion Week. And we are in week four of our six-week series uh, through the last week, the last uh, week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so we know that Jesus is going to go to the cross on Easter. We celebrate the resurrection, and we know that he rose from the dead and will spend 40 days or so walking on the earth, training his disciples, teaching his disciples, ministering to them before he ultimately ascends into heaven. And so we know that this week that we're studying is not the last week that he is alive, because praise God, he is alive today. Amen? He is risen and alive on the right hand of the throne of the Father, praying for you and I. And what prayers, man, we need those prayers. And so we excited with excitement. We know that's the the case. We know that's true. But we're looking at that last week of Jesus's earthly life. His next week, talking about the cross, Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection of series. We said it a couple weeks ago. We said it. The things that he's going to endure, all that he has endured. This was all part of his plan. All part of the plan of the Father to accomplish the salvation of his people. And yet, while he went through this week, having to endure, having to go through all these things, needing to do all these things that he did, this week was just as equally important for the disciples. That the disciples needed this week to prepare them, to get them ready for what was ahead, what was to come. And we know that they weren't perfect. They still didn't get everything right. We know that even following uh, the death of Christ and with the resurrection, there were still some things going on that the disciples needed to be affirmed in some things and taught some things. And we know that we see a very different, for example, Peter uh, in the epistles of First and Second Peter than we do in the Gospels, where we see Peter's personality coming through more than the Spirit. And so we see growth, obviously, but we want to encourage you that that week strengthened the faith of the disciples. They needed that week because when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high, he set forth his disciples, the apostles, to build and construct this thing called the church. As he's building the church through them, he's using them to write scripture, to minister the gospel, to lead people into, know, into what it means to be a part of the church, to guide them into the church time and so church age. And so here we see this is a vital week for them. But I want to remind you that we, as followers of Christ today, We need this time to strengthen our faith, to grow our faith, to prepare us for what the Lord has ahead. And so I pray that through these last four weeks, you've been doing that. You've been praying, Lord, strengthen my faith, grow my faith, help me to see you in ways that I've never seen you before. As I dive into your word with excitement and joy, Uh, I don't know about you, but there's nothing more joyful than to spend time in his word and with him in prayer. And so we encourage you to continue to do that as we go right up until Easter, but don't let it be just an up to 
Easter thing. Let it carry you beyond that. Let it become a habit where you just spend time with him and grow in his word. And so this morning, as we're continuing through this week, we're finding ourselves. Last week, we talked about the Last Supper and what a blessing it was to celebrate communion together and have that time of fellowship. And this morning, we're moving into this time of the arrest of Christ and things that are going to unfold after and at the end of this meal. The reality is history is filled with individuals that betrayed those they loved or were in allegiance to. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I know that all of our hands most likely can go up in one way or another. But not only is history filled with examples of people that have betrayed someone they loved or betrayed someone they were in allegiance to, those of us in the room right now, many of us, if not all of us, and those watching online could raise our hand and say, yeah, I've been betrayed by somebody I loved, or I've been betrayed by somebody who loved me, or maybe you were a younger person, a child or a teenager, maybe as an adult, you've experienced betrayal. You've experienced somebody turning their back on you. You've experienced somebody saying they love you and they'll always be there for you. And then just that quick, it seems they're gone and they betrayed you and they walked away from you. And history is full of examples like this. Just a couple examples we draw from history. Marcus Junius Brutus, that name might sound familiar to some of you, assassinated Julius Caesar, famously known as the one and part of that group that assassinated Julius Caesar. Another name that may not be as familiar, Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen. He is serving and was serving a life sentence for selling secrets to the Soviet Union while a member of the FBI and is considered, what he did is considered one of the worst intelligence disasters in U.S. history. Completely betrayed his country and for such a long time sold these secrets. Just complete betrayal of those that he was in allegiance to, a country that he said he loved and those that he said he would serve. He completely sold out. For money. Robert Ford, another name that may not be familiar to some, is actually credited with the killing of Jesse James, the famous outlaw, shooting him from behind after being invited to his home as a member of his gang. So Jesse James invites this man, he's a friend, and as Jesse James turns his back, Robert Ford shoots him in the back for popularity. And for credit to be the one that took out Jesse James, completely betrayed his friend. Now, just a side note, if you're going to hang around people that are known for shooting people and robbing people, I probably wouldn't turn my back too often, right? But here we hear the story in history of this man that betrayed his friend. I mean, think about this. They were such good friends, he invited them to his home. Most famously, maybe in U.S. history, the name Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold switched sides during the Revolutionary War and helped the British. Listen to what George Washington said. George Washington said he betrayed three million while Judas only betrayed one. And that's the level to which the name Benedict Arnold will forever be remembered as a traitor, one who betrayed his countrymen. And yet, George Washington points us to the greatest traitor in human history. Judas Iscariot, the most infamous traitor in all of human history. Judas walked with Christ for almost three years as one of his disciples. He lived and ate 
and walked with Jesus and the disciples for almost three years. And yet we know Judas, and he's recorded in Scripture for us, as the one who betrayed Christ. Now again, he was also, interestingly enough, and I'm going to give you some background around Judas, around this whole story. We're going to read a few different passages in the Gospel of John, which we'll go to in just a moment. I want to give you a lot of background here to establish kind of what's unfolding here. Now, many of you have heard the name of Judas. You've maybe studied the life of Judas Iscariot. Maybe you've heard teaching on Judas that's contrary to Scripture. I don't know. But I want to kind of walk through what does the Bible actually play out here? How does it unfold this amazing story? And this is why when people are like, yeah, I don't read the Bible because it's just boring. Those that read the Scriptures, that have read Old and New Testament, you realize there are plot lines here and storylines here. Hollywood has tried to come up with better stories, and they can't. By the way, Hollywood's not coming out with any new stories. It's just the same stories, right, over and over again. It's amazing to me. Every two weeks or every couple of months, I see another movie. I'm like, wait a minute. I saw that when I was 10 years old. Like, that's not a new movie. Like, what are we doing? But here we see these plot lines. Do you know why these plot lines and these storylines are so intense and so just involved in just so many different dramas and action and all this? Because it's real life. These are not fictional stories written by someone who is just creative and able to write these stories. These things actually happened. And we read in history of those that have betrayed those they loved. You've experienced betrayal of those that said they loved you or you loved them. And now we read the greatest betrayal in all of human history. Judas was also uh, in charge of the money or the money bag. He was kind of like the treasurer of the disciples. It's interesting when you study the life of the disciples, um, and uh, John MacArthur writes a great book on this, um, 12 Ordinary Men, just a great resource as far as looking at each individual disciple, what we know of them. We don't know everything about all of them. A lot of them aren't many things recorded about. Um, But it's interesting when you study the different roles that they seem to have had, different maybe positions of leadership. Um, Most people think, and and it's pointed out in this resource, um, that Philip most likely was in charge of logistics of when they would go somewhere and setting up the arrangements of things. And this is why, you remember when we talk about the feeding of the 5,000, it's Philip who's asked, how much bread do we have, right? How much resources do we have to feed all these people? And so again, it's interesting to see that some of the disciples, at least from recorded in scripture, had certain roles or things they were known for. Uh, One of my favorite disciples and what he's known for is probably Andrew. Andrew. Now, this is the brother of Peter. We know Peter really, really well. Amen? Because Peter's like us, as I said before. He says things that we want to say, but we don't always say out loud. Amen? And again, I love it. Foot-shaped mouth. That's how the John MacArthur describes Peter. He's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And so, Andrew's the one, actually, that went and got Peter, if you remember. Andrew and John were the first two disciples of Christ because they were disciples of John the Baptist, and they began following Jesus after his baptism. But you know what Andrew's known for is bringing people to Jesus. That's what he's known for. People would come to Andrew and ask questions about Jesus. I remember the Gentiles in in the Gospels, it's recorded some Gentiles show up, and and they're asking questions, and, and they go and get Andrew. And then Andrew's the one that says, let's take him to Jesus. And I love that because even other disciples knew, well, Andrew will know what to do. And if Andrew thinks it's okay, we'll bring him to Jesus. And I love that. I love the intricacy of these lives of these men, ordinary men who just walked 
with Jesus, who just had gifts and talents and abilities, and God used them for his glory. So most likely, we believe Judas was in charge of the money. Now, again, motivation for that is questioned. Some people think he did that just because he wanted to have the ability to dip into the treasury and just take what he wanted. Some people think it's because he wanted authority and control. He just wanted to be the one in charge of that money. Others have suggested he also was a member, most likely, of a Jewish sect known as the Zealots. The Zealots. Now, this group was actually more of a kind of mercenary group. They hated the Romans. They hated the opposition uh, or the oppression that they put on them. And they would fight in opposition against the Romans. But they couldn't do an all-out assault because they could not win. So what they do is they were kind of like assassins. They would move in and among crowds and assassinate Roman soldiers and, and different individuals as best they could secretly to try to overthrow the Romans. These zealots were also known as dagger-bearing assassins. Because they would keep little daggers in the cuffs of their garments and they would sneak up and they would stab a Roman soldier in the side where the armor wasn't as strong and then sneak away into a crowd. And most likely Judas could have been one of these individuals. He was also the only disciple not from Galilee. The only disciple not from Galilee. He was actually from an area just outside of Jerusalem. And so he was, again, unique in a lot of ways. So here we see this individual who's one of the disciples, he's walked with Christ, he's passionate, he's zealous for the kingdom of God, he's zealous for the Jewish people, he doesn't want anything to do with the Romans, and so we have to pause here and ask ourselves a question. Every time somebody began following Christ, I truly believe their reason for following initially most likely wasn't the reason they continued to follow. Let me say that again. The reason some of the disciples began following initially may not have been the reason they continued to follow in the long term. And for example, we believe John and Andrew most likely followed for the right reasons, but really they didn't know who Christ was. They just heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And they go, we want to follow that guy. Sorry, John the Baptist, you've been great. Thanks for having us. We've loved the whole desert life thing. We love the, you know, the, the, the locusts and the honey, and we, we really like your attire. I mean, that, that camel skin looks great on you, but, you know, we got to go we got to follow this one who takes away the sins of the world. This one is the Lamb of God. But Judas, most likely, if he had all this kind of zealous passion for the, the nation of Israel, what could be a reason that he would follow the one he believes to be potentially the Messiah? Well, maybe it's because he thinks he's going to overthrow the Romans. And so I'm going to allege myself with this individual who will ultimately overthrow this governmental power and now will be in control. And again, is that what Jesus does when he enters that last week of his earthly ministry? No. They shout, King of kings and Lord of lords, Hosanna in the highest. But by the middle of the week, there's some question marks. And he's not really doing what I thought he would do. We liked how he cleansed the temple and he turned over tables. That was great because that's showing he's in, a, in charge. He's got authority. But he should be taking on the Romans by now. And now he's talking about he's going to die? He has to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles? So maybe there was some changing of Judas's mind as to what this really was going to look like in the long run. Let's go to John chapter 13. We'll start there. And we are going to read quite a few verses this morning. So we'll start in John chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, you can turn to page 756. So there are Bibles provided there in the seats. If you're using one of those, you can just turn to page 756. John chapter 13 and we'll begin our text in verse 21. John chapter 13, 
starting in verse 21. And again, thank you for having God's word with you this morning and or looking into God's word, maybe the person next to you using one of the Bibles provided. Thank you for getting into God's word because this is where truth is found. Amen. Uh, if you came to her, an opinion of, of mine, if you came to hear from me, you're going to be disappointed. But if you came to hear from the Lord this morning, you'll never be disappointed. All right. So verse 21. So we covered the Last Supper and a lot that's gone on there. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily is like saying amen at the beginning of a statement. It's saying, attention, attention. Like, this is really important. I want you to hear what I'm going to say. So amen is so let it be, so let it go forth. So what I just said, let it go forth. Let that be true. Verily, verily is saying what I'm going to say is true. You really need to listen and apply what I'm going to say. Okay, you need to listen closely to what I'm going to say. It says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. That one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. This doesn't mean that this is referring to John. Okay, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, that John who wrote the Gospel of John. John never identifies himself in his own Gospel. He only refers to himself either as the disciple or the disciple or the one that Jesus loved. So he's referring to himself as the one that Jesus loved. Because he, even he is amazed that Jesus would love someone like him which I think we can all agree to that. Amen. I think we all can agree that, man, we're amazed that Jesus would even love us. And this doesn't mean that he was nestled up to Jesus. Okay. I, I see pictures of this and it turns me a little crazy. It's like John's like cuddled up to Jesus. Like, mm, mm, Jesus, you know, no, stop thinking that. Okay. It's not what it looks like. Because if you're a guy here today, you're like, that's weird. Like I love Jesus, but snuggled up. To, I don't know. Okay. I just, so I, I appreciate the honesty that people are like, that's kind of different. What does that mean? It just means he was sitting the closest to him, kind of right up next to Jesus. Okay, so he's sitting the closest to Jesus, which again is interesting to show that relationship that John and Jesus had as friends, as close friends. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast, so kind of looking up, like leaning in and looking up, not nestled, but leaning in, okay? Sayeth unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So this is referring to the Last Supper. Remember, there's, they're, they're taking the bread and most likely for our understanding, we'll say olive oil. There's like an olive oil type dish on the table. And usually there would be multiple dishes for people to share, okay? So if you're like not into that, Sorry, but a couple people at the table would dip in the same little bowl. Okay, so they would have the bread and they would dip it in there. And so what Jesus is saying, when I dip this, some have said it's he who dips with me. Some think it's he dipped and gave it to Judas. Okay, so however we look at it, he's referring to that act. Okay, so what does that also tell us then about Judas's position at the table? He's sitting close enough to Jesus to share the same dish. So again, just, it's amazing to me the love and mercy and grace of Christ. That he would allow the one who's going to betray him to sit close to him and share a meal with him. Because again, we're going to talk about at the end of the message, Jesus isn't like us. Because we wouldn't do that. Okay? We wouldn't do that. And praise God, he's not like us. Again, as we're going to talk about in a little bit. So let's move on. We got a lot of texts. Let's move on. Verse 
Uh, and then he says this in verse 27. And after the stop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what in, intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag of money, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that were need, need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Now, again, we need to pause here again. I'm trying to give you as much information as I can. Some people read when it says in verse 27 that Satan entered into him. Now, again, there's some debate on this. Some people think that means that he was actually possessed by Satan or a demon. Some have also interpreted this to mean that in that moment, in his heart, he made an agreement to betray Christ in line with the desires of Satan. Similarly, when he tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan had not actually possessed Peter in that moment. Jesus was saying to Peter, you don't want me to go to the cross. You're trying to discourage the cross. That's what Satan would want. You need to get behind me because you're a distraction. So again, there is some debate on this. It's not 100% clear. I know maybe you've heard things taught that he was 100% possessed. That could mean that, okay? I would also say we do not know and I do not believe that Judas was saved in this moment. I do not believe that Judas was ever a follower of Christ. Again, some would say, well, wait a minute, but didn't they send up the disciples and they did all these ministries and all these works? Yes, Jesus says he gave the disciples power to go out and do these great works and miracles during the life of Christ. But we never specifically read of Judas doing that. So again, when it says the disciples, he gave it to the disciples, but that doesn't mean every disciple. Because if Judas kind of partnered up with another disciple who had that power, Judas is just there on the coattails. But I don't believe that if this is a possession, that Judas was actually possessed, then he was not saved because the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan or a demon cannot reside in the same person. And so again, there's debate on this and there's some back and forth on this, but here's the point we have to understand. No matter where you come down on that whole point, what he's going to do is not honoring to the Lord. He is betraying Christ. In the text, we see that Jesus dismisses Judas to do what he must, which reveals to us that Jesus was not unaware of who was going to betray him, but that it was all a part of God's plan. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet Judas made a personal choice. And both those things are okay to say are in Scripture. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew Judas would betray him. He'd go to the cross. All of that a part of God's plan. But Judas, of his own choice, still made a moral choice to betray Christ. And he, like us today, are responsible for those moral decisions we make. God knows what we're going to do, but that doesn't alleviate our responsibility to do what honors him. And if we don't, then we're liable for the consequence of that. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reapeth. So again, both these things are happening here. Jesus was not surprised when Judas got up. That's why Jesus tells him, it's okay, you can go do what you got to do now. I also have to speak momentarily to a discovery of a writing that is known as the Gospel of Judas. This was actually published in English in 2006. The text itself dates to around 280 AD. And there is only, as of now, one known manuscript of this Gospel of Judas. To put that in comparison with other biblical texts, we have over 5,000 copies of manuscripts of the rest of the New Testament. 
So we have over 5,000 copies of manuscripts of the original writings of the New Testament, this Gospel of Judas that was discovered around believing to be from 280 has one, one copy. This was actually when it was discovered and really published in English. It was all over the History Channel, all over uh, people talking about it, writing articles about it. There's actually a book that was written about it. It's actually just called The Gospel of Judas. I have it if you're interested. You can read excerpts from this supposed gospel. But it is not now, nor has it ever been in church history, considered to be scripture or on par with scripture. Even the early church dismissed it as non-scripture. Hence, they didn't copy it. They didn't distribute it. They didn't put it out to the churches. So what is this gospel of Judas and why was it so controversial when it was kind of rediscovered and published in English? Well, the gospel, as they call it, speaks to supposedly a conversation between Jesus and Judas. And supposedly Jesus came to Judas during that week, maybe earlier in the week, and set up this entire thing. And Jesus told Judas, listen, they're all going to hate you. They're all going to think that you're going crazy. They're all going to think you've betrayed me, but I want you to do something for me. I need you to act like you betray me and sell me out to the Romans and the chiefs of the, uh, the priests in the temple. I need you to do that for me so that this will go according to plan. And this is, again, why some people will read that text and go, well, Jesus says, go do what you must. And that was Jesus giving Judas the okay to go do what they agreed upon for him to do. Now, this account, again, causes a lot of stir. Oh, that turns the whole gospel account on its head. Do you know that in the same gospel, Judas supposedly, and that wasn't written by Judas. They know it wasn't written by Judas. Most likely it was written somewhere in Ethiopia and kind of distributed there at least the one copy that they had. And in this supposed gospel, there's actually talk of that Jesus says openly that he is not dying for the sins of the world, that he is dying to alleviate himself of his physical body because the physical body is bad. And we need to be freed of this fleshly body, but it has nothing to do with sin, nothing to do with heaven, nothing to do with hell. It's none of that. This is the gospels are completely wrong. This is actually, it's called a Gnostic teaching. It has everything to do with knowledge, special secret knowledge that supposedly was given to Judas and nobody else. Now, why do I say this? Why take time to even go through all this? Why take time in our message to explain all this? Because this stuff is out there. And we need to know it's out there. And we need to know it's garbage. It's not true to scripture. It has no backing historically. It has no backing among any scholarly reports. No one considers this actual, legit, biblical writings. But yet, a book was written. History Channel ran with it. And people just hear, oh, another gospel was written. And they just run with it. Again, it's not accountable. This account, rather, is not reliable. It's not plausible based on the lack of content in the original manuscript that they have. There's only fragments. If you see a page, say, imagine an eight and a half by 11 page of text. You've got a splotch here, a splotch here, a splotch here, and a piece up here. Broken sentences, no real parts ever really together. There's really no paragraphs even in the document. And they piece all of this together. And what they can piece out of this is that the whole gospel account as we know it was manipulated by these disciples to make Judas look like a bad guy. Again, nonsense. Also, this would also mean that Jesus led Judas into sinning. That he tempted Judas to sin. James 1, chapter, thir- or chapter 1, verse 13 refutes that God can do that. Also, if Judas did merely do what Jesus asked, 
then why take his own life in grief? Why, why take his own life if he merely was doing what Jesus asked? Now, we know the story. He goes back to the chief priest and he throws the money to them. And he says, I don't want this. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. And they say, what do we have to do with you? Because their goal was accomplished. He leaves there in grief and sorrow. And the Bible says that he hung himself. Again, some would say, well, that's why Judas isn't in heaven, because he committed that sin. That is not true to Scripture. The Bible doesn't say that. If he enters into heaven or doesn't enter into heaven, it's solely based on his profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ, that's what gets you into heaven. And the only thing that keeps you out of heaven is denying Christ as Lord and Savior and repenting of your sins. One sin does not keep you out of heaven over another sin. That is a misunderstanding of the text. And so again, here we see this story. There's so much here. So moving ahead, we understand now Judas leaves the table. He goes about this work. Go to John chapter 18. Just flip over a couple pages. John chapter 18. And we are jumping ahead. Obviously, we're not going to cover every aspect of this, but I want to give you some different points to consider this morning. And there are notes available on the app. This morning's message is a little different. The content as far as on the notes is a little less um, because there is so much background and kind of other content we're giving you. But if you go on our app, you can find under media, sermon notes, you can find today's outline there if you would like to do so. And you can follow along here in a little bit. We'll give you some more pointed things you can record in the notes. But John chapter 18, and if you're not there by now, just hold your Bible open and the people around you won't really know anyway and you'll look fine. So... So John chapter 18, look at verse 2. Let's start in verse 1, actually. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook of Sidon, where it was a garden, into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. So this tells us a little bit about Jesus' devotional life, doesn't it? That he went to this place to pray, to spend time with the Lord. And he went there with his disciples to leave them that example. Verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers of the chief priests and of Pharisees, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, what a line. Don't read that line too quick. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him. How can he know all things that should come upon him? Because he is God. He never ceased to be God. He laid aside his divine attributes in the sense that he took on flesh. But at any moment, and he demonstrates it often, he picked them up and utilized them for the Father's glory. And so Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he. He is not in the original Greek. It's added on for understanding. So he really says, I am. They went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, meaning the disciples, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And this is the arrest of Christ. Now this is a famous scene in the garden where Judas betrays Jesus. On the app and in the notes, this is recorded for you, but if you want to jot it down as well, you can. Uh, This is also recorded in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22. So all four gospel writers give an account of this encounter. While this is no doubt... And while this has no doubt seemed overwhelming to the disciples, we must know that Jesus never lost control. He never lost control of the situation. And he willingly went through with the will of God for his life. This is why he says, should I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Remember when he prayed just a few moments ago? He said, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What was the answer to that prayer request? No, this is the only way. Was Jesus doubting the plan of God? Was Jesus questioning the will of the Father? Was he not God in that moment and his humanity was reigning? No. I believe that in his humanity and in his divinity, he was crying out to the Father, Father, if this is the will that you would have for me, I'm going through with this. I also think it's a great example for us to read later. Amen? When God leads us and we go, Lord, I don't really want to do this, but if it's your will, let it be done no matter what it costs. And so here we see that he willingly went through all of this. As I was studying and reading some different authors on this, I love one of the viewpoints that I never really quite thought of before. When they come to Jesus, is it day or night? It is night. And they come with what? Torches and lanterns. Why? Because they want to be able to see where they're going. This means that Jesus was able to see them coming from a far way off. When Judas came with these soldiers with lanterns, again, Jesus was able to see them. John tells us that this group of Roman soldiers known as a band of men, a cohort, is another translation of that in a modern translation, that this actually was a group of Roman soldiers that could be as many as 600 men in a cohort or a band. Now, it's not believed that Judas took all of them. There were some Roman soldiers. There were some uh, temple guards that were there with them, some religious leaders, servants, Just a large crowd that is coming to this garden area to arrest Christ. Where Jesus was located as the soldiers appeared in the distance, all it would have taken was a 20-minute walk up the Mount of Olives and a couple-mile walk down the opposite side that would lead him into the Judean wilderness. 20 minutes up one side, a couple miles down the other side, and he's in the Judean wilderness and easily could have escaped this group of men that were coming for him because he could have seen them coming from a long way off. And yet Jesus stood there and willingly awaited their arrival. Why? Because this was the Father's plan. That before the foundations of the world were laid, Christ knew he would die for the sins of the world. So as we think about this, I want to realize that Jesus could have easily escaped and yet remained faithful to the Father. And he followed through with what he prayed. Lord, your will be done. Now I know we think, yeah, but this is Christ. He's the Son of God. He's also 100% man, as he is 100% God. And what would you do if you saw this group coming? And he willfully stood there and accepted it. 
I also love what happens when they ask, who do you see? Or when he asks, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. What's their response? They fall on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but at that point, I'd be like, maybe we got the wrong guy. We should just go somewhere else because I'm not messing with this dude. He said his name and I ended up on my backside. Right? I mean, like, think about that. Like, I am. Why am I down here? Like, I'm looking at the stars. Like, what's going on? But Jesus, again, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you, I am he. He rebukes Peter for trying to attack one of these individuals. Most likely, he was going for his neck and missed and hit the guy's ear. And again, standing up, supposedly standing up for Christ. So what can we draw out of this text quickly? As we really have almost ran out of time completely. But what can we draw from this text? I want to really talk about one main point this morning. I pray that the Lord will affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Judas isn't the only one to betray Christ. First, we see the disciples in John chapter 13. When Jesus said one of them would betray him, they all questioned if it was them. This is a powerful moment for us to realize that those closest to Christ still believed they could turn on him given the right situation. Jesus tells the disciples that they will actually all fall away following his arrest. We read this in Mark chapter 14. He says, when I'm arrested, you'll all fall away. You'll all go your own way. Now we know the only two individuals that follow Jesus after he's arrested is Peter and John. And the Bible says that John had access to the ability to get into that area to see what was going on. And we know that Peter ends up denying Christ. Remember, Peter asked John, the one whom Jesus loved, to inquire during the meal who it was that was going to betray Jesus. Most likely not asking of himself because he was fearful it was him. Maybe Peter was already feeling a sense of that doubt in his mind. Maybe Peter was already beginning to believe that he could betray Christ given the right situation. And we see after the arrest that he does, in fact, deny even knowing Christ. When Jesus said they would all fall away, Peter declares that he would die with Christ. No, Lord, not me. I'll die with you. And we see this bravado and this kind of this manliness come out when he pulls out his sword and says, I'm going to fight with Christ. But in studying these last couple of weeks, something in another resource jumped out to me that I never caught before. Notice that Peter says, I will die with you. But Peter doesn't say, I will die for you or in your place. He does not offer to take Jesus' place and be arrested and crucified. In fact, none of the disciples offer to take Jesus' place. Now, we know they couldn't. We know that that's not going to accomplish God's plan. But they didn't even offer it. We'll die with you. We'll go with you. And if it costs us our life, then we're okay with that. But none of them said, no, Jesus, instead of you suffering and dying, I'll suffer and die in your place. Because I deserve that and you don't. And there's words from the Apostle Paul that ring in my ears. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Paul's saying, if it's even a good man, most of us wouldn't give our lives for them. And the apostles showed that to be true. And yet Christ is going to give his life a ransom for many. Those that are not righteous or good in any way, he will give his life for them. 
even though they turned away, even though he knew as he was hanging on that cross, they were fearful and scattering. And he died in their place. You see, not only are the disciples realizing that they could betray Christ, and in fact do to some degree, varying degrees, the church today is capable of betraying Christ. See, when I say the church, I'm referring to two groups of people in the church, those that truly know Christ and those that say they know Christ and don't. Those that truly know Christ, you may be completely saved by Christ, repented of your sins. You know him and you're known of him. You've received him as your Lord and Savior. You believe and you've confessed your sins. There's no doubt because your very desire is to live for him and know him more. You know that you know that you know that you know Christ. And yet at times in your walk with Christ, you willfully choose to do something that you know is not pleasing to him. In essence, by our actions, we are, in fact, denying Christ. I know you, Lord. I know you died for me. I know you saved me. I know you love me, and I want to live my life for you. But at times, if I'm being honest, I choose things that willfully go against what I know you would have me to do. This is the whole point of Romans chapter 7, is it not? That that I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And why is that? Because there's sin in me. If we say the Lord is truly the King and Lord of our lives, and yet live as though we are truly the Lord of our lives with our desires and our agendas leading us more than his desire and his agenda, then we are living as a Christian atheist. We say we believe, but practically we live as though there is no God. What about those that claim to know Christ and don't? There are those that attend churches all over the world and yet do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the group, I believe, that are leaving the church in great numbers right now in our country and all over the world. You see people leaving the church. And what's going on with the church? The church is dying. No, the church is being refined. John says this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. If they were of us, they would still be with us. Because if you are in Christ, you never cease to be in Christ because he holds on to you. You don't hold on to him. You see, they know of the Lord, but they do not know the Lord, and they are not known of him. They are pretending to have a relationship out of genuine desire to be a good Christian or a good person. They are familiar with the Lord, but again, they do not fully know him as Savior. And I believe this is what Judas experienced. Warren Worsby says in his commentary, when people today pretend to know and love the Lord, they are committing the sin of Judas. It is bad enough to betray Christ, but to do it with a kiss, a sign of affection, is the basest treachery of all. Now, in John's gospel account, we don't read of the kiss that Judas gives, but in the other gospel accounts, we read that Judas identified Jesus with a kiss, a sign of affection between a rabbi and their students or their followers. And Judas used this sign of affection to betray Christ. Could Jesus have said it any better when he said in the gospels, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is there a better verse to describe what Judas did? He literally honored Jesus with his lips, but his heart was far from him. And there are those in churches today that sing every worship song up on the screen. They say all the right things and they don't know Christ. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've read the Bible through. Maybe you tithe all the time. Maybe you're a quote-unquote good person. You do good things. I'm going to tell you, not from my opinion, denominational preference, but from the word of God, there is only one way unto heaven. It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And if you don't know Christ, you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will not spend eternity with him in heaven. You will be separated from him forever in a place called hell. It's not a scare tactic. It's not a fear factor thing. It's a reality thing. If you want to be with him, you need to go his way. So how does Jesus respond when people betray him? How does Jesus respond when people betray him? Both those that know Christ and those that just merely know of him. He offers them grace and forgiveness. Followers of Christ that have betrayed Christ, you know that the thing you're doing right now, the way you're living right now is not honoring him. You've been convicted of it and the spirit is moving. You need to repent, turn from that sin and be reminded again the grace of God that is for you. It saved you. It sustains you. Stop living in sin. It will never satisfy you. Turn and trust in Christ again. You need to turn from that thing. It will only lead to destruction. For those that don't truly know Christ, what is the invitation then for them? Turn from your sin, repent, and know the grace of God is for you. He will extend mercy to you and forgiveness if you will call upon his name. Do not leave this world dead in your sin, separated from God. You must be born again to see in the kingdom of God. This is John chapter 3. And as I said a few moments ago, this is another example of how God is nothing like us and praise God that he's not. We live in a very different culture than what God would have us to think. We live in a culture that want to hold on to betrayal against others. I said it a few moments ago. Maybe you've been betrayed by others. We all have been. What are you doing about it? Are you handling that thing in a Christ-like way or in a human way? You see, our culture says things like this. I'll do anything for you unless you betray me and then you're on your own. Social media. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm out for myself because I love people and they've turned their backs on me. We've all been there. I understand it. We've all been hurt by somebody we love. But is that how Jesus would respond? Really? I'll, I'll be there for you unless you back out of something. Unless you fall away, then I'm done with you. There's a limit to my forgiveness. I'm only going to forgive you seven times, not seven times 70. We sang a song this morning. And I pray that you read the words on the screen and don't just sing the words without thinking about what it's saying. We sang a song this morning about bring back the wayward sons and daughters. Let me ask you a question. How are we responding when they come back? When those wayward daughters and sons come back and God is moving, how do we respond to that? Well, it's about time you showed up. You're going to show me that you're really sorry this time? You're going to prove to me? Or we're going to say, you know what? God's grace is and forgiveness is for you. Do we condone sin? No. But when those wayward sons and daughters show up, we better be more like the father that celebrated the prodigal's return with a celebration and not the older son saying, well, I've been here the whole time. I never got a party. God says, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God says, in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God says, we are no longer enemies, but children of God. So I want to ask you, as we close in prayer in just a moment, if you've been betrayed by someone, have you forgiven them for it yet? Well, preacher, you don't know what they did. No, I don't know what they did, but God does, and he can give you the ability to forgive them. If Christ can forgive us, then we can forgive others. That's Paul's words. Let us be motivated by the love of Christ. Does that mean we open up our arms and we become best friends with them again and give them all the influence? Not necessarily, but we need to start with forgiveness because if you don't, the bitterness will consume you.
We've all been hurt by someone. But I truly believe that up until the moment he breathed his last breath, Judas could have received forgiveness from Christ. And I believe that we can extend that kind of grace and love to others today. So when those wayward sons and daughters come home, how do we respond? Are we arms open wide? I'm so glad that God has drawn you back. Let's talk about this thing. Let's extend grace and forgiveness. Or are we just judgmental, condemning, more like the Pharisees who don't even think they belong? Man, we love grace when we receive it, but we don't really like giving it to others. Greatest betrayal in human history, and yet all according to God's plan, because through this betrayal, Jesus Christ was arrested, beaten, crucified, murdered, rose again, and sustains our salvation if you just call out to him. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I know there was a lot of content that we talked to this morning, Lord, and I pray that it's only you can, that you would use it and apply it to the hearts and minds of those that are here today. Lord, I pray that my words were in agreement with what you desired me to say. I pray that I gave your word in an honest way, not with compromise, but I pray, Lord, that your word was presented. And I'm so thankful that even where I fall and I fail in my ability to communicate these things, Lord, your Holy Spirit will go and it has gone and is working in our hearts and minds that you are the greatest teacher and you will take this word and you will apply it to our hearts and minds that it will never return void. And so, Father, I pray, first of all, for the one here today that knows you, but is living in a way of denying you. They know that what they're living for, what they're desiring, what they're pursuing is not what you have for them, Lord. They, they believe in you, they love you, and they know you, but Lord, in this one area, they're struggling. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw them back to repentance. They would know your grace and mercy is for them, and they would get their eyes back on you. That those wayward prodigals would come home and find there's always grace and forgiveness. And Father, for those here this morning, those watching online that maybe go through the motions but don't really know you, Lord, I pray they would know life is fragile. It's but a vapor. It appears for a short time and vanishes away that we don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. And so we must utilize the gift of today to call upon the name of the Lord that we might be saved. It's the known only name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so I pray that you would convict and lead and guide people here today that maybe think they know you. They go through the motions, but they really don't. They would call out to you and be saved, Lord. It's not about good works. It's about confessing their sins and trusting in the salvation of Christ, the finished work of the cross. Would you do this work, Lord, for your glory and your honor? And Lord, for those of us that have experienced the betrayal of someone else, I pray you'd give us strength to forgive wisdom and what that looks like, how to apply that. Because Lord, until we let that thing, or rather leave that thing in your hands, we'll never experience the fullness of this abundant life that'll always be there. So I pray that we'd surrender it for your glory, even if it's somebody that we deem undeserving of that forgiveness. Oh Lord, thank you for setting that example for us. We'd leave it in your hands. Let you be the God and judge of that situation. We're not controlling them. We're just forgiving them and moving on because we want to glorify you as you've forgiven us and strengthened us in this way. Father, again, be glorified in all of this and Holy Spirit, work all of this out in our hearts and minds that we may apply it appropriately. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you respond this morning? Maybe you want to come and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my betrayal. 
sorry for denying you as Lord and Savior of my life in this area. Draw me back. Maybe you want to come and ask for forgiveness from the Lord for not forgiving someone you know you need to forgive. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we sing?